Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers here. What an honorable thing and what a privilege it is to be a dad, to be a father. And uh, what a mighty calling it is to be, to be a father, um, to be a husband and to have children and wherever, you know, the Lord leads us in this life. It's, we're very thankful, very thankful uh, to the dads and to the fathers um, that are within our congregation. And our prayers are continually for you. We know that the fight is difficult at times, and um, but we know that the Lord is keeping you strong and able and victorious. So thank you to all of our dads and fathers in this uh, congregation um, just for your faithfulness and your godliness and your love for your family. That being said, we are going to continue our journey, if we could say that, through the book of Romans. So turn your Bibles today to Romans 15. And I would like to say the worship was absolutely fantastic this morning, and it has grown leaps and bounds. And uh, very grateful for all the effort, hard work, and investment uh, that y'all put into the worship. It is absolutely fantastic and very grateful for that. So thank you. And I praise the Lord for that. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Starting in verse 1 and I'll be ending in verse 7. Um, but we're going to be focusing on verse 6. Starting in verse 1, chapter 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities or weaknesses of the weak or those who are without strength and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times is written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Jesus Christ. So that with one purpose and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we just stand here in awe this morning of your glory. Lord, we're so thankful that you have saved us and you have redeemed us and you have made us new. New creation new creatures in Christ, Lord, new people, ruled and governed by the power of your Holy Spirit, enabled, Lord, with new desires and new affections that want to worship you, want to love you, want to do what's right, wants to obey. Not out of a cowering fear of your anger, but because you first loved us, Lord, but because you chose us. And because your grace rests upon us, Lord. 
We gather this morning, Lord, for that very purpose, and that is ultimately to worship you. Lord, to, to be under the preaching of your word. Lord, to trust in your word. Lord, to pray, Father, that you would continually use us as a small assembly here at 116. You would continually be glorified in our lives, Lord. And that we'd continually reach out to the world with the gospel of your son. Exalt yourself this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message this morning, if we could have a title, it would be titled this, Having One Mind and One Mouth. Having One Mind and Having One Mouth. Romans 15, verse 6 says, That you may be with one mind and one mouth, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe we can take everything that Paul has said up to this point, up to this chapter when dealing with who we are in Christ, our salvation, sanctification, and soon to be glorification, it would be this, this one statement. We are all one in Christ. Because being one in Christ eliminates any distinctions, any other ways or alternatives or options that the world might try to give us to remedy our sin. There's only one way to God. As the Bible says uh, in the book of Ephesians, the whole point can be summed up here. In Ephesians 2.14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself, hear me now, one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them, both the God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who, who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we have both access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and no longer foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Ephesians 4, 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we exist. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we exist. And this is the context by which Paul has in mind both in what we've been reading through chapter 14 and 
15. This is what Paul's premise, this is the idea, this is what he's trying to communicate to us, whether you are weak or whether you are strong, whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile, that there's no distinction, that we ultimately, at the end of the day, are all one in Christ. Paul starts out in Romans chapter 15, verse 1, by saying, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities or weaknesses, and some translations use the word scruples, which means really an ethical consideration or principle that inhibits action or like a mental reservation. What the scriptures are telling us here is that we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities, bear the reservations that others may have towards certain things that may be crippling to another's faith. I like what it says in Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who are mature, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, not anger, not abuse, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens as so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus said himself, he said, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. It's interesting here because you see the characteristics that Paul is trying to communicate. These are the same characteristics that Christ he himself had communicated through the entirety of his ministry. And I love uh, what the word of God says and how we are supposed to behave when it seems in a day where behavior is an issue with a lot of what we see today um, being peddled as Christianity, even from those who um, seem to be the arbitrator, arbitrators of truth. You see, even the Reformed faith, those that seem to have all the answers, still operate in a spirit of, a lot of the times, condemnation or harshness or heaviness. You're not seeing a lot of this today being operated within the body of Christ. And every time that we return to the scriptures, we see this being repeated over and over and over again on how we're supposed to minister to one another. The kind of respect and the kind of gentleness that we're supposed to have with one another, even those who are overtaken in any trespass. We ourselves should operate in a spirit of gentleness, considering ourselves lest we also become tempted. We are to bear one another's burdens. What does that look like? How are we to truly operate in this manner? What does this look like for the believer? In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we read this, and we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with them all. It seems to be that what's being spoken here is that those of us who are 
experience, to have been in the faith, are instead of trampling upon a weaker brother, we're supposed to operate in such a way to where we, t- we are to admonish them if they are idle, to move them, but to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with them all. This is how we're supposed to behave. Not the opposite, where much of what you see today isn't uh, a lot of patience, there isn't a lot of gentleness, there isn't a lot of encouragement of the faint-hearted. You know, these are dealing with other brothers and sisters in whom, for whom Christ died. These are those in whom Christ took upon himself the full wrath of God and said, this is his elect, this is his church, these are his people, these are the body of Christ, this is the family of God, and we should treat each other with much respect, much patience. We are to encourage those who are faint-hearted. We must reach out to them with a gentle and humble spirit. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's really a call for discipleship. We don't hear that word much anymore. We don't hear the word discipleship hardly at all. But as much as we hear the word evangelism anymore in today's church, at least biblical discipleship and biblical evangelism. But really, this here is a, is a call to discipleship because it, it does tell us to correct, to admonish others. But here we're, 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 we're taught by the word of God and how to behave towards one another, how to lead one another, how to help one another, how to bear one another's burdens. We need to be taught these things. We need to be trained in these things. We need to be schooled in these things. And we need to be true followers of Christ. It says here that we then are strong not to bear the infirmities of the weak or those who are without strength and not to please Ourselves, because this is really the antithesis of bringing pleasure to ourselves when at the end of the day there's nothing that can bring greater pleasure to ourselves than dying to ourselves, forgetting about ourselves, and reaching out and helping those who are, who are in, in, in need. It really is a true call uh, to discipleship. In verse 2 it says, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification." Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9, the Bible says, For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. So what is the goal of our ministry to others, especially those within the church. Because ultimately, this is what Paul is dealing with. He's talking about no distinctions. He's living, obviously we dealt with the culture, we dealt with the culture that Paul was ministering to in his time in Rome. The types of issues that he dealt with, with the cults and the, the false god and the, the, the culture of bloodlust and all the things that were happening in his day and the worldview of the Gentiles and and um, the Jewish brethren that were coming to faith into one body. And Paul was really dealing with how do we minister to one another? How do we deal with those now within the context of the church? Even in our day, even in our day today, we notice that 
you know, what we can sometimes here be uh, defined as we're multicultural. What do they mean when they say that, multicultural? Well, it means that there are people from different places that have different cultural backgrounds that maybe have um, been brought up in another environment or another country or have different ways and views in how that they live their lives. And then we all come together as one body in Christ and we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ as one body with many differences, with many backgrounds. So with that being said, it brings a uh, different level of commitment to the table. How do we deal with one another that come from different arenas and facets of life? We're not just dealing with sin here. We're not dealing with just addictions. We're not dealing with trauma or depression. Now, yes, these are things that definitely can come about in each individual's life, but we're dealing with culture. And this is really church culture. It's Christ culture. This is the culture of Christ where we are all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all been saved by the same gospel, by the same King of Kings. We are all empowered, as the scriptures tell us, by one God, one Lord, one Spirit. We've all come to God through one baptism. We're all identified as Christians. We're identified in Christ. But yet we all have differences. We've all come from different places in our lives. And this is what Paul is dealing with here, is that in his time, he had people coming to faith, coming to faith that were coming from different arenas and facets of life. They were coming in with different worldviews, with things that may be extremely offensive to one party and not the other. And it's very important that we develop good discernment but it's also we have a good understanding of what's sin and not sin. Okay, it, it, someone may not be operating in the same way that you operate or may not have the same convictions. It doesn't mean that person is in sin. Does that make sense? But they may express their love for the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that may be different from yourself. And the multicultural element is beautiful. It should never be a source of contention, but it should be a a source of where we can grow together. And it gives us an opportunity uh, not only to grow together, but also to learn from one another. That ultimately our identity is in Christ. I'm a Christian. My identity is Christ. That is who I am. But if you study my life or you know anything about me, you know that I have come, you know, I was saved at 28 years old. I come out of a very odd background. But I was converted and brought into the body of Christ. Many of you have grown up in Christian homes. Many of you, uh, not many of you, a few of you come from other countries. But we learn how to operate in such a way where Paul is saying that we as believers in Christ, the mature and the weak, need to operate in such a way that it would glorify Christ in everything that we do. It is our aim to provoke one another to good works. It's not our aim to provoke and to harass each other, to condemn one another, or to bring you know, any kind of false accusations upon another person because their lives don't exactly look like 
yours. We're to bring reconciliation and relief to the dejected, to the afflicted, to the burdened, and to the anxious soul. Kind of like we see here, look at listen, listen to what, how Job answered those that were trying to bring rest into his own life, but were bringing messages that actually made his situation much worse. He says, I have heard many things like these. He called them miser miserable comforters. Are you all? Is there no end to your long-winded speeches? What provokes you to continue testifying? I could also speak like you if I were in if I were in my place. I would I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But he says, I would encourage you with my mouth. And the consolation of my lips would bring relief. Here's an extreme difference in, in how we're to operate, and we're to be those that would encourage with our mouths and bring consolation of our lips. And we're to bring relief to one another and not discouragement. Romans 15, chapter 2, or verse 2 says, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Which is referring to Psalm 69, chapter 9. And then in verse 4, it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our instruction, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. That is in ancient times in the Old Testament. He, he refers not only to the quotation from the 69th Psalm, but to all of the Old Testament Scriptures. In verse 4, it says, Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. This is really the, the, the essence of, of, of what Paul is, is dealing with here when he's bringing up the reality of these things that were written before were, were, were there for our instruction. You know, you think of history itself. You know, if you read church history, you read biographies, you read these things, you get you get insight into the past. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, or you, you read about those who contended for the faith in the past. And what that actually does, it brings encouragement to the present. When we look at the Old Testament, I mean, we could even read uh, through the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith, and we could read about the great accomplishments that God has done through people like you and I. We could read through the scriptures because, see, what it does is that if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to have issues of affliction. You're going to have to persevere. As Romans 5, 4 says, is that we have to learn how to not complain in our sufferings, which I have done repeatedly before, but we're to rejoice in our sufferings because we know that these sufferings produce perseverance. And when we read the Old Testament, we read these stories about the saints of old. We hear about their challenges. We hear about the adversity. We see what's happening in their lives. And this brings to our present situation encouragement. It brings hope and increases our faith. We may learn here that affliction may prove to be a great blessing. 
And that the proper tendency to affliction is to bring hope. That the way to find support in afflictions is not to go to the world, but to go to the scriptures, to go to the Bible. By the example of the ancient saints, by the expression of their confidence in God, by their patience, we may learn to suffer and may not only be instructed, but may find comfort in all of our trials. And this is interesting how Paul has laid all of this out by showing first and foremost dealing with the weaker brethren and the, and the stronger brethren and how we deal with one another, but ultimately leading to the reality that we are all one in Christ. In dealing with this issue, he brings up this reality of history and the the, um, the the instruction of the Old Testament, reading through the scriptures, reading through the Bible. It enables us, it gives us strength to persevere through our affliction. Think of Christ himself. Even the Lord Jesus was a prime example of one who studied and relied on God's word. Studied and relied on the Old Testament. In Hebrews 10, verse 7, says this, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Christ himself expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Even God himself, God in the flesh, referred to the scriptures, went to the Bible as his source of commitment, as his source of faithfulness, as his source of strength, as his source of dealing with the enemy and the adversity and Satan himself, he went to the scriptures. And those of us who are in the faith need to understand that our perseverance and our encouragement, as it says in Romans 15, 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you, listen, to be of the same mind with one another, listen, according to Jesus Christ. This verse is telling us the reason it references Old Testament scripture, it references the Psalms, is showing us clearly not only did our Lord do this, but if we're going to be able to continue in the faith, we too must understand this most profound and powerful principle. And in verse 6, Romans 15 verse 6 says, so that with one purpose and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this really gives us the purpose of our lives. Ultimately, that it is Christ himself who has saved us, who has made us new, and has given us a purpose, who has given us a voice. That is the reason that we exist in the body of Christ, so we may glorify God, our Father, and our Lord. Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, it says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. 
and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I mean, this just really lays it out very clear with Christ giving us an example of how we are to live our lives. How we are to construct the pattern of our living around the reality of who Christ was, our Lord and Savior. And Jesus said, all of those who will come after me must take up their cross. You must die as well, daily, and follow me. And this is a true reality for all of us. We need to have the mind of Christ in how we live. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And this is so extremely important as the body of Christ is that we, as a family of God, speak the same thing. Preach the same Christ. There's only one Christ. There's only one gospel. And we as a body need to understand this, that there be no divisions among us, that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind. Unity is so important, not at the sake of compromise or expediency, but unity for the sake of Christ. Unity in, in the foundations of our faith is the vitality of the life of this church most important thing that we can do as the body of Christ as is to trust in the true one biblical gospel. The true gospel of Christ. And not be ashamed of the gospel. That is who we are. That is the, how we identify ourselves as with the word of God. We can't all be separated and divided on who Christ is. Which was a problem. There was a problem in the Corinthian church, Paul dealt with this. This is where contentions come from. This is why it's so extremely important to be unified in our beliefs in how we read the scriptures, how we understand our salvation, and ultimately how we understand the God of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1.11 says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, now we're not just dealing with meats and holidays and festivals. Now we're dealing with name dropping and reputations. Where Christ just said he became of no reputation, that he humbled himself. He became a man. He gives us a picture of the reality of the believer's life, that we are not to be of any reputation. We're not to follow any man. We're not to be identified with men, but we're to be identified with Christ. These controversies just created contention and division in the church because they became a source of contention. Just like 
with one person eating meat and another person not eating the meat, or one person celebrating a holiday and another person not celebrating that day, where those things can be very divisive. This was a big divisive element within the context of the Corinthian church is that they were name-dropping, that they were following uh, certain people and apostles um, and were divided over these particular names. Paul goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God that I baptized none of you, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Or another translation says, stripped of its power. See, it's stripped of its power when we're, when we're not dealing with Christ. We compensate by jumping into sectarian views of the Word of God. We start wanting to be cliquish. We want to be uh, gathered around certain people or certain teachings, and we make these the central focus of our Christianity. In other words, you know, you'll always find in every cult that they have a specific pet doctrine that they lift up as if it's Christ. And they enforce it and they talk about it. They're intoxicated with it. They're obsessed with it. To such an extent, it becomes their Lord. It becomes an idol. And it's interesting, and if you do not conform to that particular view, then you are not saved. So basically, in essence, what they're saying is, if you don't conform to their view of the Sabbath day, or you don't conform to their view of a particular ritual, then you're not converted. When the Bible says that we can only be converted through Jesus Christ, not converted through keeping some holiday, uh, upholding the Sabbath, eating some particular meat, or trusting in some certain doctrine. Obviously, we know that doctrine is important. It defines the Christ and God that we serve. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying just love Jesus and don't worry about theology because our theology determines the Jesus we follow. Theology is of the utmost importance. The point is here is that when you have become so addicted to a certain perspective that it's become your God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards calls it an intellectual salvation. In his time, there were those who were so held captive intellectually over certain particular doctrines that that became their source of salvation and they were unconverted. Which at the end of the day, they are the most unloving people you will ever meet. These are, you know, cliques and uh, basically small groups of people that kind of gather together and unite in certain ways where other people don't. And it's extremely important that even within the context of the church today, in our church, that we got to be really careful that we ourselves don't find ourselves breaking off into cliques, breaking off into um, small little units that are showing partiality or, um, you know, holding to things that, that you know, um, become center in our lives when in reality Jesus Christ should be center in our life. Like what James chapter 2 verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then we get the warnings and examples of judgment 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed to the sea. All were baptized. Now check it out. They all passed to the sea. They're all under the cloud. They all passed to the sea. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That's a great warning to us. It's very sobering to read it. They did everything together. They experienced all this power together. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They all followed the cloud of the Spirit of God. They were all baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. They're all unified here. They all drank the spiritual drink. But God was not well pleased with them. And this is a startling reality that though we may look as though that we're doing everything perfectly, God could not, may not be pleased with our lives. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It gives us two different examples of two different sets of those who were professing believers. Those of us who read the scriptures for our encouragement so we persevere through affliction, persevere through pain. And what that does to our Christian life, it molds and it shapes us and it sanctifies us and it molds and shapes us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Or we have the other route where the examples of those who pretended to love God, but all they were is complainers and they were sexual immoral and they fell and they died. Thousands of them, the complainers and all these things were, you know, set for an example to us that we want to be the first group and not the second group. And then Paul finishes his, his thought by saying, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In Romans 12, 16, it says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Philippians 1, 27 says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Which brings us to verse 7. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, everything that we, you've just heard, everything that you've just read, receive one another. And what does that look like? 
What does it look like to receive one another? How is this defined? Well, it's defined in Christ because the Bible says, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. This is how we are ultimately, this is the presupposition in how we're to operate. We're to receive one another just how Christ has received us. How did Christ receive you? You ever thought about that? How are you received? Think about that for just a moment. Think about the moment that before you came to Christ. Think about your life. Think about your situation. Think about the pollution and the sin and the depravity, where you were at, complete and absolute total rebellion against God. And Christ receives us. Not because we were good, not because we were talented, not because God could see something about us that he liked and thought he could use us for the kingdom, but there was nothing about us that attracted him to us but his mercy. God had mercy upon us. He ends his discourse with the same terms in which he began it. In Romans 14, 1, where he says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Before the, before the strong only were charged to receive the weak, but here both are charged alike. The strong must receive the weak, and yes, the weak must receive the strong. They must all have communion with one another, continuing in brotherly love, accounting one another for brethren, exercising mutual forbearance and long-suffering. You see how it's switched up here. Now it's, it's now that we are to receive one another. It isn't just saying the strong, you must receive the weak. The weak, you can do whatever you want to do, not a big deal. Have your way, you're still immature, it doesn't matter. No, he's saying that we are to receive one another. That now, you know, we are to both receive one another as Christ has received us. And that is the bottom line. A lot of times we can find ourselves running out of patience with one another. And our ability to be able to forbear. Forbearance really means that um, we continue loving somebody despite themselves. It's a long, continual patience with an immature person. It, it's, it's not giving up on something because over a period of time, you just get sick and tired of it. And we live in a day which we could call a throwaway culture and where relationships are... You know, you can, you can take it or leave it. And they're not really valued. And the scriptures value relationships. They, they put a lot of the utmost value on one another. As a matter of fact, so much value that that dictates or defines our salvation. Not because I love Josh, I'm saved. But because I'm saved, I love Josh. And because... We love one another. There's forbearance for one another. There's long-suffering with a person who is growing 
and growing and being able to deal with that. But it goes back and forth. It's just not one-sided. It's a continual long-suffering for one another. It's learning how to have good discernment for one another. Uh, you know, the, we were talking about this this morning as the men were gathering together that we need to discern who we confess our sin to because some are very immature. Some people aren't ready for a download. Some, some of those don't have the capacity to be able to handle your sin or your confession. So we have to have discernment in how we deal with others. And we need to be mature when we hear the sin of others and know how to minister properly and correctly to one another. I mean, when we're reading the word of God here, it should establish us in such a way and give us the muscularity, if I can use that word, to be able to operate in a biblical way that glorifies God. We should be able to, not in perfection, but be able to minister to one another accurately and biblically with forbearance. A person should be able to, uh, a brother in Christ should be able to share with another brother in Christ something he struggles with. And you in Christ should be able to deal with that in such a way where it doesn't heap condemnation on him. But as Job says, it brings rest to him. It It isn't ammunition for you to go gossip in your group to other people about somebody else's sin. It's having the maturity to know how to deal with the reality of these conversations and being able to effectively minister to one another in a godly way. See, what happens if you're immature and you're dealing with things, you can turn sin into an idol. Sin doesn't identify you. Christ identifies you. But if you're immature and you're dealing with sin, you can raise a certain sin in someone's life to the point to where that sin becomes your identification marker. And all you ever talk about is that sin. When dealing with your marriage, you talk about that sin. When you go outdoors, you go out shopping, wherever you go, all you talk about is that one sin. And you make an idol out of it. You make Christ out of the sin, which is totally contradictory to Scripture, that you're not identified by that one particular sin. A sin can be very grievous, don't get me wrong. It should be dealt with appropriately with deep repentance, right? But the reality is, is that we need to understand that you're not identified by that grievous sin that you've committed years ago or a day ago. You're identified in Christ. We need to understand that because immaturity destroys. Trust me. Immaturity is the number one thing that Paul was dealing with. I believe it was uh, obviously in Romans 14 and 15, but I believe it's in 1st or 2nd Corinthians. He, when he's dealing with the whole issues of meat and days and all these different things, he's not dealing with the, the, the issues of the mature. He's dealing with immature people and their behavior towards the mature, towards their freedom, towards their liberty. Very immature in the way that they would minister to others in ways that almost were abusive. Just because someone's old doesn't mean that they're mature in the faith. You can have a younger person that's been walking with the Lord who expresses a lot more maturity than sometimes an older person. And we have to understand this when we're dealing with one another and who you talk to and who you express your feelings to. 
Everybody isn't game, unfortunately. Sorry. Everybody in the church isn't ready to hear your problems, unfortunately. As sad as that may be, you may share something with somebody in the next day it's on the front page news. We need to be selective, but we need to be we need to develop relationships in such a way where there's trust. I know this. When you have a believer that's growing in Christ, who loves Christ, who's seeking Christ, who lives in Christ, and knows you, and you've developed a relationship with that person, trust is developed. And when trust is developed, then it brings uh, it's it's really conducive and it brings an environment that's conducive to be able to talk to another person. Because there's nothing more beautiful when you can come to another saint and be able to deal with these issues and find relief. To find relief. This is how <clears throat> Paul is defining the way that we operate towards one another. And he leaves this, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. To the glory of God. And this is the push. This is what everything, this is how everything makes sense. This is the actual plumb line of our lives. This is why we do anything because this is the total motive of our existence is to glorify God. In Psalms 89 verse 9 it says, All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify Thy name. In Romans eleven thirty six, it says, "For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory, forever." Amen. This is the this is the ultimate authority of the believer's life is the sovereign God, and everything that we do reflects our love for Him. On one sense, our hatred towards Him. And then we see the glory of God in our sanctification. In 1 Corinthians 6.20 it says, For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. Do you ever think for a minute that you're, you don't even own your own thoughts? That God, God owns you, right? God owns you creatively and he owns you redemptively. He owns you because he created you. Psalms 24. But also, he twice owns you because he's redeemed you by the precious eternal blood of his son. And the redemption is all of you. All of you, even your thoughts. God owns all of you. We don't have a right to think how we want to think. We don't have a right to our own way of thinking. Ultimately, at the end of the day, God owns our minds, owns our thoughts. We're to have what? The mind of Christ. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ. Even our thinking belongs to God. And we don't have a right to think how we want to think. Even Jesus said, you've heard this said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But he goes on to say, even if you lust after another person, the thoughts and the motives and the intents of your heart, God sees as the very act. God is so holy, he knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. He knows our motives. Even those belong to God. Orthopathos, which is the which is really got the orthodoxy, which is the the word of God, you have orthopraxy, which is the outworking uh, of of the word of God, and then you have orthopathos, which is the 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 word of God, which harnesses our emotions, our thoughts, our affections. Those all belong to Christ, to the glory of God. 
whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, do all for the glory of God. You won't burn out this way. You won't burn out. In other words, you won't be a Mormon next year and a Jehovah's Witness the following year. You will be a Christ-honoring lover of Christ all the days of your life if your motive is grounded in glorifying God in everything that you do. If your motive is just to be seen, if you're performance-driven, you love attention, and your whole motive for everything that you do, whether it's your giving, whether it's your preaching, whether it's your evangelism, or whether whatever it is, is not rooted and grounded in glorifying God, you'll burn out. You won't last. Because you're not doing it for the glory of God. You're doing it for the glory of yourself. And the last point is really just um, declaring God's glory to the lost. In Psalm 96.3 it says, Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. Well then what is the glory of God? 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is, this is our lives. And this is really, ultimately, at the end of the day, where we have one mind and one mouth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for instructions. We thank you for your wisdom. Lord, I ask that you would give us one mind and one mouth because the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Lord, those of us who may be in this room today that don't truly know you, that may be living the pretended Christian life, who only wants hellfire insurance, who only wants to go to heaven, but wants to continue to live their own life. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would give them a heart. Give them a new heart, Lord. And put your spirit within them. Grant them repentance and faith in your Son. That you may be glorified in this congregation, Lord. Father, let no one be left behind here. Lord, I pray that your word will be effectual today. And those that don't belong to you would come to you. Lord, be honored by the preaching of your word. And Lord, I ask God that you would help us. Lord, these things that we've heard today, these things that we have read, these things that were spoken would be applied to us today. That we wouldn't walk out of this building absent-minded, forgetting everything we just heard and going on uh, with our lives, Lord. But that we would truly be transformed by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.